This morning we're, we're going to cover all of chapter 3 up to this point. Obviously we've gone through chapters 1 and 2. And at chapter 1 we saw Luke kind of introducing the book and this transition from the life of Jesus to the life of Jesus continued through the, the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we saw Jesus then ascend back to heaven. And then in chapter 2 we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. And then after Pentecost, after that event, we saw Peter preaching uh, to the, the people there. And uh, we saw the response of the people. We saw where, where things are at up to this point last week with a description of what the, the church looks like, what the early church looked like in verses 42 through 47, this, this new community. What does the Holy Spirit do to the people of God? Well, second, uh, the second chapter of, of Acts kind of gives us a pretty good description of what it looks like for the Spirit to form a new community. We took a, a number of lessons away from that last week. We come into chapter 3, and chapter 3 and 4 kind of go together, although we'll just be dealing with chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to kind of see a similar outline of, of these two chapters that we saw in chapter 2. We're going to see a description of the events. We're going to see an explanation of the events. Then we're going to see kind of the, the, the results, the consequence, or the responses. We'll look at those next week in chapter 4. Similar to chapter 2, we see a preacher, and that's, that's Peter, but, but we also see of Peter here, he, he's a worker. We're going to find out what he's doing. In chapter 2, the audience was, was a multitude. Here, we're going to find out that there's uh, primarily one man. In chapter 2, we see that the results of the, the events of the Pentecost were, were blessing. Uh, people were getting saved. And in chapter 4, we're going to see the results included some conversion, certainly, uh, not some, but conversion. But also, we begin to see the first, first bits of persecution that hit the church. In chapters 3 and 4, which cover uh, a few days, we're going to see how Jesus' ministry of word and deed is continued through the apostles. We'll see that. As we remember this, that the book of Acts is the acts of Jesus continued by his spirit through his apostles. That's what the book of Acts is. And so here in chapter 3, we see the gospel that Jesus brought continuing to advance in the world. In chapter 3, shows us just that. In the first 10 verses, we see that the apostles, uh, they, they do something. We see a healing take place, uh, which leads to uh, a conversion. But we also see Peter preaching again, but this time his preaching leads to conflicts with religious leaders in chapter 4. We'll look more again next week about that. So let's follow along, beginning in verse 3, as we pick up uh, this, this next piece of the narrative of Peter uh, Peter and John. So now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the, the ninth hour. And the lame man from birth was carried, uh, whom laid daily at the gate, uh, gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive Alms. Here in the first uh, section here, we're going to see that, that Peter and John raised this, this paralytic. Uh, but, but the story goes kind of like this. Peter and John are together, which Peter and John are, are together uh, often in the book. We actually find their, their business partners back in the Gospels. We see that they were 
two of the people who prepared the Last Supper. Now, later on here in, in Acts, we're going to find them ministering to the Samaritans. But they're on their, their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. And then they call it the ninth hour. Some of your Bibles might say 3 p.m. And they come upon this lame beggar who was, who was brought... Obviously, he's lame, so, so someone had to bring him uh, to the, the gate of the temple uh, daily to ask for, for alms or to ask for, for money, to, to beg for money. It's important to know this as, as we kind of hear this narrative. That there, there are three foundations of the Jewish faith. One of them is the Torah. That's the first five books of our Old Testament or the five books of Moses. Secondly, worship. Worship was a foundation of, of the Jewish faith. And third is showing kindness or giving of alms. And so a, a beggar would be in a really good spot to receive charity if he hung out by the temple, right? This was a pretty good spot to ask for, for money. And so uh, not, not uh, in, a, in a smart place, that's where, that's where he went daily. Uh, charity, he certainly needed and he would get it uh, most likely there. But this... This guy was not just a beggar, but he was lame, which means that he wasn't just broke, he was broken. Right? We actually find that, that he's, he, he's been lame his whole life. And if we go a little bit later on in chapter uh, four, we find out that, that he's 40 years old. So for decades, he has been lame, right? For decades, he, he has been in this uh, posture and who knows how many days, how many weeks, how many months he, he was brought to the temple in order to beg. And so there he is begging. And in verse 3, he calls out to Peter and John. And in verse 4, we find that, that Peter and John look at him. And they say to him, look at us. To which he fixes, look at verse 5, and he fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, which is a pretty reasonable expectation, right? Uh, you're begging for money, you get someone's attention, you would expect that they might, uh, they might respond to your, your, in, uh, your inquir- inquiry of, of money, of, of give me something. But then we read verse 6, it says this, and Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter doesn't want better, right? He doesn't want better than giving him money. He gives him healing, complete healing. Verse, read verse 6. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. A miracle. An absolute miracle that God did through Peter and John. Verse 8 actually points us to, to a, an Old Testament prophecy back in the book of Isaiah. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 35, verse six. And then shall the, the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. That, that part, lame man leap like a deer, that language is being used here of this, this walking and leaping. And it's pointing back to this, that there, there is a, a partial fulfillment of what God was coming to do in the world What was, was healings like this. This is telling them something. Something has changed. Something's happening here. Who does that? Who heals? Who, who heals lame people? Well, that's what God is going to do. And here we're seeing a, a, a glimpse of the, the, the partial fulfillment of what is to come in the Messianic age, in the kingdom of God, when God makes all things right. When, when the, all the lame that know Jesus are, are healed, when he restores the world, 
uh, again. It's a sign that the acts of Jesus are continuing, right? That's what's happening here. That's what, that's what uh, Luke is pointing to as he accounts this. Additionally, though, we, we can't just look back at this and say, okay, so that's prophetic and that's great that that was healing and that points for. But we have to take a moment here and say, what does that tell us about the emphasis that we ought to have? That, that Peter and John were, were going to worship. They had certainly a great intention to go for the hour of prayer, to go to worship. But they didn't miss the lay bigger. At least not that day they didn't. They had, they had eyes to, to see the hurting. Do you know that it's possible to be so focused on, on worship or so focused on ministry or, or doing things for God that we can miss the people who are hurting in front of us? Do you know that we can be so caught up in church world that we miss out on the people in the world? Right? That, that's a real thing. And this man had been laying there for who knows how many days. Right? In this day, God... God uh, acts, and this man is healed. There's something for us surely to see here. Now, the book of Acts, like the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, is showing us that we ought not to only be concerned with the crowds, that's what we saw in chapter 2, but we also ought to be concerned with the one. That's what we're seeing here in chapter 3. But as you think about that lame beggar, maybe you think about other people. Maybe you think about the person on the side of the road with the sign, or maybe, maybe you think about other issues. But what this man was physically, you and I are spiritually. We ought not to get past that either. Right? Is this man was, was born lame. What does that mean? It means he was born unable. He couldn't do anything for himself. He, he, he could never have, have done enough. He couldn't do it. He needed help. We too are sinful and unable. This man was poor, which means he had nothing to bring. He was empty-handed. So too are we. Even our righteousness is what's called filthy rags. He was outside the temple, outside the place of worship. He was unclean. He couldn't go in. So too, we are outside. We are enemies of God. This man was healed. How was he healed? By grace. He didn't deserve it. So too are we. Healed by grace. Undeserved merit. He gave evidence of his healing. How did he give evidence of healing? He was walking. He was leaping. So there was a a change. There was evidence that something had actually happened in his life. Right? For you and me spiritually, we, we actually show a difference when we come to Christ. And the response to the healing was to praise God. Right? What a great response to the work of God is to give God praise. So too ought we. Read verses 9 and 10 together. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the right response, right? What in the world just happened? Everyone seemed to recognize this guy. He'd been there for a while. Some people had seen him. And uh, they're wondering, how did this happen? What, what in the world went, uh, went on that this man is now walking, leaping, and praising, praising God? And the next thing we read in verse 11 is that Peter sees the opportunity. Right? He doesn't miss it. He doesn't miss the opportunity. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, not quite still confident in his new ankles. Um, And all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them, to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So Peter now proclaims uh, a message, and he explains the healing. Explanation follows actions. 
Right? That's what we see Jesus doing stuff and then explaining what, what's going on. So the ministry of deed here, healing or miracle, is followed by the ministry of the word, an explanation. We saw that in chapter 2. Pentecost comes, Peter explains it. Healing comes, now Peter's going to explain it. And Peter begins in verse, keep following in verse 12, says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter begins with, with two denials. The first one is that this is not our power. Right? Peter or John did not have the power to do this. No wizardry here, no witchcraft here, no, no some sort of God is, is doing this, small case G, which is not uncommon. Later, Paul and Barnabas are going to heal a crippled man, and the people's response is, Zeus has come down. Right? This false god is here, and Paul and Barnabas are, are them. And Paul and Barnabas rebuke them straight away that that's not what is happening. But here, Peter and John, they are not claiming their power. They're saying, in fact, it's not our power, nor is it our piety. It's the ESV calls, calls it piety here, or godliness. Neither the godliness of Peter, nor the godliness of the beggar. Right? So no one was, was uh, uh, God, God was doing something, and he wasn't because of their, their goodness. We also find that the beggar doesn't even ask for this. Notice, notice that? The beggar doesn't ask to be healed. The beggar's looking for money. So we find that he, it's not somehow that he's good enough for the healing or, or that Peter and John are good enough for the healing. Rather, God is showing that this is something that God does. This is God's power. That's the point. It's not to draw our attention to a man, but it's to draw our attention to God. So Peter begins with denials, and then he goes into a number of affirmations. The first we see in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his son, Jesus. Now you may say, what does that have to do with the healing? Well, he'll get there in just a minute. But he uses this language. God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he do that? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. God is talking to Moses. This is what God says to Moses. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what's Peter doing? Peter is using this reference to point to the fact that this is the same God. This God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God of Jesus. The same God that Moses heard from is the same God now who is healing this man. It's the same God. Then he goes to say this, and this Jesus, you, you guys killed him. Listen, whom you delivered, Jesus that is, over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. This is what he says. You delivered him over to be killed. You denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. And you denied the holy and righteous one. And instead you asked for the murderer Barabbas. And fourth, you killed the author of life. That's a pretty bold preaching. Right? It's pretty bold preaching to the people who literally just did that. 
These were the same people who did that. He's, he's not making something up. He's not making up an accusation. These are the people who did all the things that he just said. He's saying, this one who you did all of that to, this is the one who God sent, the servant of God. And he's going to find out in verse 16 that he is the one who heals. But let's go to the, the rest of verse 15. He says, whom God raised from the dead. You killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead to whom, uh, to this, we are witnesses. You killed him, but guess what? God reversed this dishonor. God reversed what you did, and he raised him from the dead. Resurrection was and continues to be a fundamental part of the proclamation of the gospel. Peter is showing us here, you don't have the gospel without the resurrection. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross. That's not all that the gospel is. It's that he rose again. And that's why Peter keeps coming back to it. That's why the Bible keeps coming back to it. It's desperately important that we understand that the resurrection is real. That Jesus bodily, literally rose from the grave. He conquered death. The author of life did not stay dead. That God raised him from the dead. Then he gets to the answer to the question in verse 16. And he says that Jesus healed the, the lame man. Read it with me. And his name, that's Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. In verse 16, he says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's power in the name. Right? There's power in the name of Jesus. Warren Wearsby says that a name implies more than identification, but carries with it authority reputation, and power. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, tell, tell them so-and-so sent you, right? Or tell them, and they give their name. Why, why do they do that? Because something is connected to that name. Some sort of authority, some sort of power, some sort of reputation is connected to that name. How much more here? When Peter says, not in my name, not in the name of Peter, rise up and walk, but in the name of Jesus this Jesus, this one who, who actually has Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, whose name is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that's the Jesus, that's the name by which this man is healed. Jesus, the one whom they had killed, is the one who heals. Peter says that it's through faith that is faith that is through Jesus. That's the language. Faith that is through Jesus is what gave this man perfect health. Now, some might understand that to be the man's faith. I don't think so. I don't think the man did anything to show any sort of faith for this healing. There's no indication of that. Rather, it's Peter's faith that the God gave the faith. That God gave the faith to be healed. Faith is always given by God. Whether it was given to Peter, whether it was given to the layman, it's always given. How could you have faith today? You don't conjure up faith. God gives to you faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. What's the, what's the gift? The gift is faith. That God gives you the faith to believe. So faith is not about some depths, something that I conjure up, but faith is about the object that we put faith in. So you can have all the faith in the world, but if it's in the wrong object, it will profit you nothing. The question is not about, it's not so much about 
how much faith you have, but in whom do you have faith? Right? The faith through Jesus, the person in the work of Jesus. In the next verses, we find that Peter has an exhortation here to repentance. You might remember his sermon in chapter 2, where Peter doesn't miss an opportunity to call people to repentance. And neither should we. Look at verse 17. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Uh, Peter starts by addressing their, their guilt. And he does, he does something that he did in chapter 2, where he shows this, this connection between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. You see it in verse 17, when he says that, that you were, were ignorance, that, you, that in your ignorance, you did what you did. Uh, Peter is addressing here a, a distinction in the Old Testament between sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. Uh, Numbers chapter 15. You might remember uh, Jesus saying on the cross, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they're doing. Right? They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. So Peter is, is addressing this idea of ignorance. But man is still responsible. Ignorance isn't an excuse. Verse 18 tells us that though they did that in ignorance, it was actually what God was doing all along, that God was going to fulfill his will through the death of Jesus. Jesus had to die. That was God's plan for the salvation of the world. God was sovereign over these events. But neither ignorance nor God's sovereignty removed their guilt. It is true today. You might sin by mistake. You might sin in ignorance. And God might still choose to do something through that. But that doesn't absolve you from your guilt. It does not. In fact, you and I both still need pardon. Pardon for which God gives, of which he gives. Look at it in verse 19, the offer of pardon. He says this, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come for the presence of the Lord, that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. First, repent. Repent. Repentance means to change one's mind. It certainly involves feelings of sorrow, but it's more than that. Uh, one young Sunday school girl said, repentance means feeling sorry enough to quit. Or Burke Parsons says it this way, the greatest evidence that you have been truly repentant in your life is that you continue to repent the rest of your life. Uh, repentance is not a one and done. Repentance is ongoing. Repentance is not only what we say, it's what we do. Repentance is not just something we declare, but it's something that we display. It's something we demonstrate to those around us. Warren Wearsby, the best defense for the truth of the Christian faith is a changed life. Peter calls them to repent and to turn again or to be converted. Repent and be converted. Repent and believe. Repent and change. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. It's a twofold call. It goes hand in hand. 
Two sides of the same coin, if you will. Repent and believe. Repent and turn. And what are the results? First, sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven or, or sins are, are wiped out or, or blotted out. One commentator tells us that, that in ancient times when they wrote on papyrus that the ink was, did not have acid in it. So it actually sat on top of the paper. And so you could take a wet sponge and wipe the ink away. That's the picture here. That the wiping away, the blotting out, the washing off of sin. How does that happen? It happens through repentance and faith. As it was with the ink, so it is with our sins. That through the blood of Jesus, our sins are remembered no more. That he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. You also see this same idea, the wiping away. We see it again in the New Testament at the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21. So here he's wiping away our sins. And for those whose sins have been wiped away, in Revelation chapter 21, we find out he wipes away our tears. Our sins now, our tears later. Second, times of refreshing or spiritual refreshment. This is rest. This is relief. This is ultimately when Jesus comes back. Ultimate restoration. We read these verses in 20 and 21. Again, this is ultimately what happens when Jesus comes back. When suffering gives way to glory. When we see the new heaven and the new earth. For those who've repented, we can know this. The best is yet to come. Until then, until the time of refreshing, Jesus is with the Father so it says, heaven must receive him. But Peter says that these prophets, the Old Testament, speaks of this Jesus, verses 22 through 26. Look at it. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him whatever he tells you. Verses 22, uh, 23, 24, talk about the prophets. We've got to summarize here. Then verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me summarize it this way. Peter identifies three major prophetic strains in the Old Testament. We see Moses, we see Samuel and the other prophets, and we see Abraham. What Peter is showing to us is his understanding of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is a single story. That what was happening in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the New Testament. That Peter is showing to us that what those prophets were saying about what was to come is being fulfilled in Jesus. It will ultimately be fulfilled in his coming again. Peter is saying that Jesus is the prophet like Moses that was prophesied. He is saying that he is the coming king that was prophesied by the other prophets. And he is the seed of Abraham that is talked about in the book of Genesis. So what do we come to find? We come to find this, that, that Jesus did not come just to show us the way. He came to be the way. He did not come just to, to speak truth. He came to be the truth. He did not come just to teach us about the meaning of life, but he came to be life. Right? That's what John chapter 14, verse 6 says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was not one among many. Jesus was the true and better, the true and better Moses, the true and better coming king, the true and better Abraham. Peter was a Christ-centered preacher. Right? We see it here. We see it as he's, he's speaking about this Jesus over and over, using different names for the name that, that heals, for the name that saves. But look at verse 26 with me again. God having raised up his servant. Some of your Bibles say his servant Jesus. The word servant as a title for Jesus is not used very often in the, in the New Testament. However, it does take us back to an Old Testament prophecy. 
in Isaiah chapter 53, where we find the suffering servant, the suffering servant who was prophesied, the one who would be despised and rejected, the one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the one whose wounds would heal as the iniquities of the world were laid upon him. That's the Jesus that we're talking about this morning. That's the Jesus that healed this lame man. So as we come to this table this morning, we remember this one, this servant who suffered and died in order that we might be healed, not from paralysis, but from our sinfulness. The one who came and is coming again. If you know Jesus this morning as your Savior, and you're walking in fellowship with him, we invite you to share in this meal this morning. As we take this piece of bread that symbolizes his body, and we drink from this cup that symbolizes his blood. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning as your Savior, or if you are walking, uh, if you, don't have, you have sin in your life that's been unconfessed, we uh, caution you, don't, don't, don't uh, partake today. Rather, Receive the, the good news of Jesus. Receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers as you come to him in repentance and in faith. As the elements are, are passed this morning, we would encourage you to talk to God. If you have sin to confess, do that now. Give thanks for Jesus being willing to give his body and his blood for you, for the remission of sins, that you could be healed of your greatest need, the greatest need being your sin. God, we ask your blessing now on the bread. We recognize this morning that Jesus' body was given for us, that it was pierced for our transgressions. We don't want to get over that. Scriptures tell us as often as, as we take communion that we, we need to remember. Do this in remembrance of me, and we want to remember today. Would you bless this time as we think again of our crucified and risen Savior, God, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.